Previously on Fine Just Fine, the reader's interpretation of a poem may not only be quite different from the artist's idea of what he was doing, it may even be better. Hello, everyone. This is Wally Sherold, returning after a nearly four-year hiatus to Fine Just Fine, right here on SyncBook Radio. I am delighted to finally be able to release the second half of my fantastic conversation with Dr. Eric McLuhan, which took place in late summer 2015. Sadly, in the time since part one was released, Dr. McLuhan passed away in May of 2018. While I regret that I'll never have the chance to follow up with him on the various fascinating topics heard here, the fact that I got to chat with him for over an hour back in 2015 is one of the great honors of my career. And once again, special thanks to Andrew McLuhan for facilitating the recording of Dr. McLuhan, and thanks also to Alan Abadessa-Green for his ceaseless encouragement to overcome severe burnout and get this episode done. If you enjoy this content, let the folks at SyncBook Radio know. I've got six or seven more fascinating interviews gathering dust, and if this one is well-received, I'll commit to finally producing and releasing them. So, without further ado, here is the conclusion of my talk with Dr. Eric McLuhan. has actually really taken off is because it's so great to just reinterpret something like a classic film through the lens of this new person's completely out of the field interpretation. And it's... Whether or not even I end up agreeing with some of the things that they may claim, that's also irrelevant. I'm just there for... It's it's almost like you're seeing the same film again for the first time. And... uh, I think this this idea in general of regurgitated content has become a real popular format uh, on the internet, especially of essentially watching someone watch a movie or listening to someone listen listening to someone listen to something, and it's and you're more interested in their commentary on the work than than the work itself. See, I think the important thing is what kind of responses does the work provoke. In, in the sensibilities of the beholder. And it's going to change from one beholder to another and from one period to another. Any decent work of art will produce a whole spectrum. Right. Uh, now, there's going to be a consistency in that spectrum. But the artist, the minute the artist is done making the thing, at that point, he becomes a member of the audience. Yes. And his interpretations at that point are no better or worse or more or less valuable than anyone else's. Now, that wasn't always true, though, for music, because... Yes, it was. Well, but... but as, as with all the other arts. How, but, well, but if, if, if the... If it's true of one art, Wally, it's true of the rest. Well, I, I, under, no, I understand your point. I guess my okay. my little quibble I'll, I'll bring up there is um, <laughs> prior to the invention of, of audio recording, yeah. unless the composer was... Well, okay, It's I guess my point is, is let's say if it was a, a Bach improvisation on the organ, is Bach an audience member during that improvisation? 
The moment he's finished composing it, yes. But what, what if it's never written down? Then it's all then it's jazz. <laughs> or it's a uh, most of rock and roll. It's funny you bring up jazz because I I've made comments in the past about this what I just told you about before are these this uh, ad hoc weekend warrior critical theory um, of of just people f- on their own whim uh, analyzing popular media of all forms and to me. I've posited to some of these synchronicity communities that that is the natural evolution of jazz. Remember the word jazz means a conversation. Exactly. In French, jazz is to, to chat. Right. To converse. Um, and recorded jazz, like jazz written down in, in, or translated into a score, uh, this is embalming fluid. <laughs> the ink... Yeah, it kills it. Right. Uh, it's no longer conversation. All the spontaneity is gone. Right. Well, Wynton Marsalis would disagree, but... but. Well, okay, <laughs> so what? I know. Uh, yeah, I, doesn't, I, I don't agree with his, his take on that at all. But, um, no, I agree. And my, my point is that, that during, <clears throat> especially in the age of, like, the bebop musicians, um, and uh, I, I like to kind of equate them to these walking musical encyclopedias... And the medium of their time really uh, was radio more than anything. And, yeah. and again, an, an ephemeral media or but, medium. But Bebop was a response uh, to radio. Exactly. And, it were the, and, and it's these conversations with, with uh, a small group of, of, these, of these musicians with encyclopedic knowledge. Of, well, uh, the equivalent, I guess, the state of the art at, for their time of having all of this stored knowledge of music, not only mentally, but muscularly. Yeah. And, and then getting together in a room and essentially, you know, trading, re- trading references and associative uh, exchanges in the form of music. And, and today we're, we're, you know, you can... Well, you're, you're, you mean they're just quoting other musicians as they play? They're quoting other musicians or they're... they're, they're you know the song, like the song Cherokee, is based on a, um, an old—I don't remember the even original standard—but they would just take an old standard and and totally rewrite the melody over the yeah, chord well, changes. Yeah, well, okay, but musicians have always done that. Sure. In fact, you cannot play anything on any instrument, any series of notes that someone somewhere hasn't played before. Right. It can't be done. Oh, I—I'm I, I'm not arguing that. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> so where's the uh, inventiveness or the creativity? Well, it's in how you bring that up to date. Right, and and its and its relevance, I guess, to the present. And it's it's the same thing in in uh, writing, in literature, in poetry, in literature. You can't use a word that hundreds and thousands and millions of people haven't already used. Right. There's only so uh-huh. many sounds that, that you know we can we can make with our mouth. But if you do such a thing, then you're talking your own language. You're really just talking to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to communicate with other people, you have to use their words, right? Uh, which is something that some of the purists forget. Indeed, <laughs> <laughs> that 
the originality consists in using their words to stimulate their sensibilities and provoke them into noticing and feeling and thinking things that they hadn't before. And that's where the art comes in. Absolutely. I think just to, to, to recall uh, the thunder of, of Finnegan, or the, the ten thunders, I believe, of, of Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, that's wake. right. A hundred-letter words. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you notice there are ten of them in Finnegan's Wake. Uh, nine of them are a hundred letters long. One of them has an extra letter. It's a hundred and one letters. Oh, Grand total of letters, 1,001. Right. And that brings what to mind? 1,001? Yeah, the Arabian Nights. Okay. The 1,001 Nights. 1,001 Nights. And Finnegan's Wake is a night book. Night as in? As in good night. Uh-huh, not as in chivalry. Or, or maybe, no, no. Or maybe no, both. No, no, not that one. <laughs> No, it takes place at night because uh, Joyce said he had to put the language to sleep. Uh-huh. In order to, uh, to loosen it up. Well, that makes sense. So the language could dream? Yes. So that uh, it would be very free, uh, free of its daytime routine and cares, uh, and uh, free also to uh, play. Well, it uh, certainly does. The thunders, the thousand or the hundred letter words are all of them poems. And uh, uh, they, aside from being thunders, thunderclaps, which are sort of creative utterances, and here you can hearken back to uh, the words at the creation of the universe, uh, these are that kind of thing because each of them concerns a technology. There are ten of them and ten major technologies in the book. The last of them is television. Um, And the one before it, number nine, is about uh, two big technologies, very noisy ones, uh, the motor car and the airplane, uh, in an era when mufflers were new. Right. (laughs) And not much used. Um, and so all the rhythms in that thunder are those of the reciprocating engine. In fact, all of the words that structure that thunder uh, are words for cough in about 19 or 20 languages. Really? Yes. Why, why cough? Yeah, because the engine coughs and uh-huh. sputters. Well, I f- it's, it's funny, just uh, as a little side note, I've always... Um, <clears throat> found it interesting that prior to the invention of the loudspeaker, yeah. um, thunder, well, and, prior, and maybe prior to the invention of, of the railroad and steam engines as well, but thunder was one of the rare occasions where people had the experience of feeling sound. Pretty much. Uh, the natural response, though, in most cultures to thunder is they immediately... Uh, get hold of the shaman and say, what did he say? Because they figured thunder was the gods speaking uh, and the shaman was supposed to listen to it. This is interpretation of the book of nature. Here's thunder and uh, you go ask the guy who is supposed to be able to read these things and say, what does it say? What does it mean? It would be interesting, actually, because there's all sorts of processes that you can apply to, well, any any content and just arbitrarily assign some kind of translation process to it. I do that often where 
Um, <laughs> you know, and just to, as a poetic exercise sometimes, or like, yeah. uh, or, or, or take a piece of text and put it into a, you know, a translation software and translate English to Tagalog and then mm-hmm. to Swedish and then back to English and see, sure. get, or, but it would be interesting just to take audio recordings of thunder and, and maybe isolate, you know, just the, the, the loudest attacks of, of the thunderclap and, and, and convert it to Morse code or, uh, you know, I mean, Mm-hmm. And just you know, come up with an arbitrary or speculative kind of ambigrammatical analysis of it, and just derive. Why not just ask the shaman? Well, I don't. I don't have one in my neighborhood, so I have well, to get one <laughs> <laughs> or become one. I, well, I'm, that I'm working on, <laughs> but it's a. It's I'm a. I'm a slow learner, mm-hmm. or a, and a late bloomer. So the thunders are ambigrams too. Oh yes, absolutely, or polygrams absolutely. even. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of that, one of the thunders, the second one in the book, is composed, it's the only one in the book that has words for thunder in it, although part of the uh, the cliché uh, approach to the thunderclaps is that they're all made up of words for thunder. They're not. Only one is. The second thunder is made up exclusively of words that mean thunder in exactly 17 languages. Interesting. And what technology uh, does the second one uh, evoke? Uh, clothing. Okay. And weaponry, and seagoing ships. Hmm. All all at once, or all in- all at once. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> that and a couple of dozen other things. But the main lines of force in the thing are the idea of thunder as a uh, the sound of a new technology being born. Mm-hmm. And uh, the effect on language. And that would be, it's the thunder's kind of reverberation is, yeah. is the effect. It, uh, Joyce is a, what we call a realist in the spectrum of nominalists and realists, nominalism and realism. Mm-hmm. Nominalists believe that the names of things are simply arbitrary labels that you slap onto something and that's what it's called. The realists say, no, 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 and the, au contraire, mon ami. Uh, the uh, the word and the thing are a kind of analogy of each other. Yes. And the word is the way the thing translates itself into human experience. Constant. And as you go from one culture to another, the experience of the same thing is a different experience. And a different uh, word. And so it would produce different sounds and a different word. And the thunders are a collection of what people humanity makes of this or that or another event or technology. Um, so is it, could, it, could it be construed that a thunder is, is a, a kind of colossal act of naming? Yes. Okay. Exactly as uh, in the book of Genesis. Right. The act of naming was the act of creation. In the Garden of Eden, apparently, the first job that Adam had was to name things, right. to find the names for things. Right. right, right, right. So his was an act of recognition. Now, you mentioned in, in On Formal Cause this, um, and forgive me, my... No, go ahead. My, well, uh, but speaking of Adam, and... <laughs> well, uh, uh, <laughs> speaking of Adam... Yes, the, well, the, this idea that he at some point did have a... Um, 
could 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 read the so-called book of nature and then lost that ability. Yes. Now, my I, it's been a while since I've read the book of Genesis. I have to confess, uh, but when Do you want absolution from me, no. <laughs> <laughs> But um, uh, I guess I'm wondering when when he was he was was he given the task of naming or was this a ta- yes and was this before or after he fell? Oh, his first job his by himself. There was no one else around. Okay, so Nate uh, so- except him and the creator. Yeah, and then uh, okay, so and then his acts of but the the fall was it was was obviously when he. He and his partner in crime joined forces. Uh, that's, a, that's a different kettle of fish. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did want to just touch on uh, this part about the thunder and just the just general idea of the weather. Um, and, okay. And just, you know, there's the popular cliche of... Uh, you know, when you when there's nothing else to talk about, you talk about the weather, or, or sure. and small talk often mm-hmm. involves chatting about the weather, um, among other things. Among other things, of course. But I've often speculated, coming coming from my background as a as a composer and being exposed in in music school to a lot of the <clears throat> very kind of avant garde, well, I guess just movements in in 20th century classical music of these all very very elaborate stochastic and generative systems that certain composers mm-hmm. do, uh, so I was influenced by this idea and and you know they can become grandiose quite quickly but when I when I encountered this idea of the ambigrammatical nature of, of all media uh, and I wanted to come up with a, a way to to just at least theorize how you could kind of map like what I like to call the human meme, meme gnome um, uh, and 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 come up with a, a a fundamental particle that all of these ambigrams are derived from. Mm-hmm. Um, inevitably, I was overwhelmed by the enormous complexity of of the of the entire pileup of human media, and how how could anyone possibly begin to find some kind of common thread in this in this accumulation of history, and. That led me to the, the realm of chaos math, which was, grew out of this need to understand the weather. Mm-hmm. And, and we rely on that every day still um, as, a, as this kind of approximation of, what, of, the, of the dynamic system of our atmosphere. Yeah. And like, like you were describing before, uh, depending on you know, what part of the world you come from and what time you happen to live in, a particular word or sound will have a very distinct meaning mm-hmm. versus, <clears throat> versus um, somebody maybe 200 years later on the other side of the planet, you may make the same sound and it will mean something obviously completely different. And if, if such a thing were able to be cataloged as this giant pile of data, that would be actually, you, you, you would break down all of these ambigrams and be able to categorize them as they occurred in a certain geographical location at a certain time. And if you didn't break them down, you just took them as they were, you'd wind up with the thunderclaps in Finnegan's Wake. Ah, and why is he that? Was, he was collecting 
all of the human responses to this or that or another technology. Mm -hmm. Not in terms of their ideas, but in terms of the raw perceptions. A language, you see, to a realist, a language is an organ of perception. Okay. It's a way of knowing things. Sure. And it is also an encyclopedia of the experience of the culture. Not in the meaning. It's a testimony of... It's an encyclopedia. Right, the language itself. Of raw perception and experience. Right. And the ideas uh, sort of float on the surface. And depend, well, the, and, and that surface is constantly shifting, both yeah, temporally. But the deep structure is the perceptions of the users. Uh, this brings to mind uh, something I've been intending to uh, get at uh, for a little while in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to ambigrams. Sure. Um, that's becoming a very popular word. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> the word medium in understanding media has two meanings, and the readers always impose one and ignore the other, which is a big mistake because the other is the more important. On the one hand, a medium is a thing like a radio or a television or a film or um, a writing system. These are media. But the broader idea of medium and the one that is more general in that book is uh, an environment uh, okay. Now, every technology brings with it a whole environment of changes, and that environment is a medium, a milieu. Oh, okay, I see what you mean. Uh, well, in the <laughs> on the very first page of the book, he, uh, my father writes, an envi- a medium is an environment, a whole environment of changes uh, that are brought along with and imposed by the technology, changes to... Uh, your daily habits, your mental habits, uh, your way of life. For example, take the computer. Yep. Right? The medium of the computer is all the changes that accompany the thing. Changes in business, changes in private life. The medium of the car is the road. Mm-hmm. It's not cars. Cars are a technology. And we can talk about cars as media, fine. But the medium of the car is the road and the oil and gas companies and parking lots. And the polluted uh, air. <laughs> and polluted air, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the medium is uh, a whole set of good and evil changes. It's largely invisible. When you're using the car or you're using the computer, the one thing you're not thinking about is the medium. The content of any medium or of any environment, is all the older stuff. Right. Every environment takes over everything else as its content. Mm -hmm. And so the content of, let's say, content of television, Mm -hmm. or the content of radio, content of TV is movies and newspapers. Right. And and drama and stage. The content of radio is the music hall Mm -hmm. and plays and the newspaper. The newspaper, yeah. The content of movies is books mm-hmm. and novels. The content of any form is the older forms. Right. And when it takes them over, it changes them. What it changes, actually, is the user. Yes. And ultimately, the content of any medium is the user. 
The content of radio is the listener. And in the process of becoming content, you get worked over and changed and retuned and all your senses and sensibilities are reshaped and refashioned. So you change your mind about a whole lot of things. Which is, Now, the content of the new media, by which I mean digital media, is all the old analog media. And every one of them has been reshaped. You're, you've been in the music business for a while, so you know what digital did to the recording industry. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, so do I. I was in uh, a, an area of that business when digital came in and did all those changes. Um, and Did you uh, see the writing on the wall? <laughs> Uh, to some degree. The grammarian is the guy who reads the writing on the page and the writing on the wall. <laughs> of course. Well, I figured if anyone may have been able to predict that, it might have been you. So when my father wrote about understanding media, he wasn't just talking about the, the figure, the technology. But the ground he as well. He was talking about the environments. Mm -hmm. Speaking of just digital technology and the content of it being all of the prior media and forms, um, yeah. one thing... Uh, I've noticed. I, I've also spent some time in in that in the digital computer industry and mobile devices and these the touch screen as yeah. as a as a new medium. Um, are you familiar with the term scudomorphism? No. Okay. So this is a term I learned in just uh, reading about the the politics at Apple Computer. Uh, okay. And prior to Steve Jobs's <clears throat> death. He was a huge component uh, or proponent of of a a, a a user interface design aesthetic known as skewdomorphism, and I, I I should look it okay, up. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What is the first few letters? S K E U. Okay. D O. Yeah. I might be. I might have a few of those syllables wrong. I'm just remembering off the That's top of my head. That's all right. But the idea is, for example. And there, there was it, this is a heated debate between Jobs and his chief design guru, um, and Jobs was in favor of this scudomorphism, and and the other guy obviously uh, really abhorred it. But the the idea is essentially a, an easy example is when you open a calendar application, and as you go from, you know, if you're looking at it from a, the view of a single month. And that, like, let's say you open it and, and it's January, and then you go to February. At the top of of the calendar application, there's a little graphic that looks like a, the 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 leftover tear off paper. Or mm -hmm. so so the the user interface would actually have this would recall the analog object in some way. Mm -hmm. So um, or or basically designing. Uh, a, a, a button that you would click on a screen to to, to look three dimensional, like it's a a, a, a physical button, or basically yeah. this this tendency to to bring in the phys, you know attributes of the physical objects that you're now approximating and and simulating on the screen to to drive home the familiarity the 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 user friendliness of it, and this is a design style that has now been completely uh, abandoned. In mm -hmm. all of Apple products, um, it started a couple. Like they always update the the software on the on the phone every year or so. And I think it was like two or three years ago where they came out with the the completely flat design. And 
Yeah. It's very visually appealing, but for a lot of users, they really struggle with knowing whether or not just what's a button and what's just a, a static symbol mm -hmm. on the page or on the on the screen. Right. And it seems, you know, this is this is that same tendency I feel that Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's or the word processor on a computer is still trying to be a typewriter in its first version, and yeah. or the earliest touchscreen um, web browsers were trying to give you the experience of using a desktop computer. Well, this is also very typical of any new technology. The very first thing any new technology does is take over the pre-existing ones as its content, but it also imitates them. So the first thing, the first jobs of the computer were to become a filing cabinet and to becoming uh, adding machines. Right. And it went from there. After a while, it begins to discover things that it can do that the other stuff couldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, but it takes a while. So, uh, you know, it's even recorded in the names, like things like horseless carriage. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> It had nothing to do with horses or carriages. This was a totally new form. Right. The, uh, the horse and the carriage never gave rise to suburbs and cities. The centralized city was a product of the railroad. Well, it's interesting too. There's um, there's a history of the you know the words that we now use for artificial intelligence. But look in the name artificial intelligence. They th they're still thinking in terms of miming or imitating intelligence. Exactly. They have to get beyond that to know what the hell the new thing is. Sure. Right? Well, it's funny if you actually review, if you go back in history and try to find the early, you know, earlier notions of, of some type of automated uh, or mechanized mm -hmm. intelligent machine, that uh, a thinking machine, uh, you, you go back to, you know, the invention. There's another one. I'm sorry? A thinking machine. Yeah, that's exactly, or automaton or robot. But yeah. it's funny, as soon as I learned about the tetrad of effects, uh, I felt like that was my best ammunition yet for um, <laughs> uh, the, the pursuit of artificial intelligence. And I well, it also gives you the power of prediction. Exactly. And speak, well, speaking of prediction, are you, um, you know, Bray Kurzweil, who is probably the most, one of the most prominent evangelists for the benefits of, of artificial intelligence has his laws of, ex, of accelerating returns. And the singularity. And the singularity. And, and my rebuttal to, I mean, I, I enjoy his reading his work a lot, but ultimately I, I reach a point where it's, I say, well, but what about the laws of media? And, and, mm -hmm. and, the, and because if you look at the history of art, of, of, the human notion of, of artificial intelligence, it's always defined within the scope of what has already been achieved technologically. Yeah. Well, by those rules, intelligence has always been artificial. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... That's where you're going, isn't it? That is where I'm going. I mean, okay. when we invented so, metaphor, we invented artificial intelligence, yeah. in my opinion. Well, um, speaking of artifice and artificiality, it's time that I uh, uh, did something else. Oh, well, that's well-timed. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're just at 65 minutes here. So, uh, well, thank you so much for joining me in this great conversation. It's been a good conversation. Well, thank you, and I hope to do it again sometime. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Wally. I hope that's just fine. Good night. Good night. Thank you.